You know that feeling you get when you find a really great deal on something? It's like, wow, today's my day. Well, you can get that great deal feeling over and over again at the Safeway Stock-Up Sale. Enjoy aisle after aisle of big savings on everything you need. Use your club card and get fresh USDA Choice Beef Boneless Chuck Roast for only $3.99 a pound. Selected varieties of General Mills cereals are just $1.49 each. And find coupons throughout the store for amazing deals on stock-up favorites. You're going to love the Safeway Stock-Up Sale. It's just better. Love Talk Radio. You're listening to Holistic Living, brought to you by East West Healing and Performance. And now, here are your hosts, Josh and Jeannie Rubin. Welcome, guys, back to a great show with Ray Pete today. We're going to be doing question and answer. I know a lot of you guys are really uh, have been awaiting this type of show. Um, Jeannie's not going to be on the call today. It's just going to be me. Um, once again, like we always do, I'm going to introduce ourselves and then Ray, and then we'll get to it because I know a lot of people have been emailing me with tons of questions. Um, don't forget you can call in this time. I'm going to try to take as many callers as I can. Be patient, um, but be uh, pay attention to yourself on the phone, so when I call you in, you can ask your question or two. Uh, the number to call in is 347-426-3546, 347-426-3546. Don't forget to check out our website at eastwesthealing.com. It's being completely overhauled right now, and it's really looking great. The new site's not up. It'll be up in another month or two, but it's looking great. Uh, but just stay tuned. There's a lot of great stuff on our sites, from articles to YouTubes to our blog our Facebook, all that great stuff. So take a look at that, look us up, and feel free to give us a call if you want to set up a free consultation. Uh, we consult with people all over the world. So enough about that. Let's get back to Ray Pete. He's uh, been very nice this year in joining our show every month, and um, I know a lot of people have greatly appreciated it, including myself and my wife. Um, you know, Ray uh, basically is a Ph.D. in biology from the University of Oregon with a specialization in physiology. He's taught at many schools from the University of Oregon to Montana State University to other naturopathic schools um, and other schools in Mexico. You can take a look at his website at raypeat.com, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com, to learn more about him and his background. He started his work with progesterone and related hormones in 1968, so he's been doing this for a long time. Um, And if you look at his website, he's got umpteen amounts of articles. You could probably spend the next 20 years reading them and another 20 years rereading them to really get the gist of what's going on. But um, really love his work, cutting edge, thinks outside the box, and um, I know a lot of you guys feel the same way. So check out his website. I know Ray's on the call. You're there, Ray? Yes. I think the first question, some, everyone, keeps, <laughs> everyone keeps emailing me and wants to know, do you have a timeline when you're going to start releasing or taking new subscribers to the newsletter? Uh, yeah, we. I think we changed that notice, and they're available okay. now. Okay. There you go, every guys. So you can stop emailing me. He will start taking new subscribers to his newsletter. Um, definitely, you know, if you want to sign up, go to his website, raypeat.com. You can sign up for the newsletter, send him your information to check, and you can sign up by mailing in your information. Um, we have some callers on the line I'm going to take, but we can get right to it. I have some questions from uh, people that email me. 
Um, I'm just going to ask one of them to start, if you don't mind, before I take some callers. The first one is a lot of people out there are so gung-ho crazy about probiotics. I mean, that's all you hear. People love gas, take probiotics. You know, anything wrong, take probiotics. And you don't really talk too much about probiotics. Can you elaborate for the listeners on your thoughts about it and maybe some of the the pros and cons of taking it? Um, Specifically, are you thinking about uh, the um, bifidus? Yeah. A lactobacillus and bifidobacter separately or a combination type of probiotic? Um, They are probably okay to try. Um, One thing that has made me skeptical about them was uh, an article published in Nature about, I think, probably 35 or 40 years ago, uh, showed that there are uh, antigenic uh, regions on these uh, lactobacilli that are exactly matching for um, uh, proteins that are associated with female reproductive action, so that from puberty to menopause, roughly, uh, there's the risk of uh, having a, an autoimmune or immunological interaction between intestinal bacteria and uh, body tissues. And uh, there hasn't been much follow-up on that, but uh, that is the period when uh, autoimmune-type problems show up in women, and estrogen is probably the main factor that that is involved in that, but it just happens that there is this uh, antigen parallel between the bacteria and the person. And um, the the bacteria do have a direct anti-inflammatory effect on the membranes of the intestine. But one problem is that uh, they do produce lactic acid, and so if you uh, provide them with enough fuel, uh, they can uh, produce lactic acid, which is uh, a potential toxin. Uh, it stimulates inflammation and uh, formation of fiber collagen stimulation. Right. I think that's the biggest thing for everyone to understand is that lactolobacillus is lactate-producing. So if you take it and you don't need it, you're actually causing more of a problem than helping yourself. So think about that. Um, Another question from a caller, I kind of know the answer to this because you talk about this a lot, but, you know, taking questions. So she wanted to know from a health perspective, is there any time you ever would recommend fasting in regards to helping someone with their health? Uh, There have been studies in which uh, rheumatoid arthritis and similar things uh, just are completely relieved uh, during a week-long fast, but... uh, then it would come back as soon as the person eats again. And uh, that's partly because your cortisol increases tremendously when you're not eating. And what the cortisol is doing is converting your uh, muscle tissue mostly into fuel to live on. And at the same time, it's uh, having an anti-inflammatory effect. But the bowel is... uh, really the 
the basic cause of, of most of the degenerative inflammatory diseases. And so uh, th there's a tremendous uh, good reason for th thinking that that uh, fasting is, is therapeutic. And I've seen animals with uh, huge tumors that just refuse to eat, and if their owners uh, just let them uh, sit around not eating, uh, they would recover and live for years. Uh, so the, the the lack of appetite uh, during sickness is uh, a natural uh, opportunity to fast, and uh, sometimes it has a therapeutic effect. But uh, since the the reason the bowel is so connected to the inflammatory diseases is that the well besides the bacteria that produce things such as lactic acid and endotoxin, each of which has its range of harmful toxic effects, uh, the intestine itself produces a tremendous amount of serotonin, okay. and the serotonin, uh, if it isn't detoxified right away, uh, it has uh, promotes not only fibrosis and inflammation, but uh, multiplication of of uh, cells in the blood vessels, thickening them, and promoting tumor growth, and uh, just about every degenerative condition you can think of. So if, if you can lighten the inflammation load in the intestine, uh, you can uh, achieve the same thing as fasting, even though you can still... Uh, keep absorbing nutrients if you just do it in a way that you don't uh, either produce endotoxin, lactic acid, or serotonin excess. And um, partly that means uh, using a, a very easily digested diet, uh, avoiding the uh, undercooked uh, vegetable matter, for example, that can't be digested by human enzymes and uh, provides good food for bacteria and uh, having um, other easily digested or uh, slightly antimicrobial foods, uh, raw carrots or boiled bamboo shoots, for example, have germicides that uh, prevent bacterial growth. So I hope that answers the questions for, I think it was Judy, um, in regards to fasting. I'm going to take one of the callers. Someone's been on hold for about 10 minutes. I'm going to take a caller from area code 360. Area code 360, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't sure if you had me. Hi. Um, hi, Dr. Pete, Josh. Thank you so much for bringing us these shows. They're really truly informative. I've listened to all of them like 10 times a day. So I actually use the power of Facebook to collect a couple of questions from a couple different people. So if I'm allowed to throw a couple questions at you, that would be great. Um, Go. I'd okay. up to him, not me. Go for it. Okay. Okay. So my first question is it's really popular these days to approach eating and dieting um, 
sort of restricting certain foods and advocating the use of other foods based on what we evolved to eat, things like the blood type diet and the paleo diet and those things. And so a couple of people and I were wondering what you, Dr. Pete, think about this approach to eating. Uh, well, that whole approach assumes that we really know what the species ate while evolving. And uh, there are a lot of fantasy theories uh, that uh, whatever people enjoy eating, they tend to read into the history of people. Uh, and uh, the essential uh, evolution from uh, ape-like animals to human-like animals, uh, no one is really sure what people were eating. Uh, I am inclined to think that, uh, and there's a direct present experimental uh, evidence that uh, supports it, I think, better than uh, some of the currently popular ideas, such as canines of, about fish eating and so on. I think fruit eating uh, was a good candidate for uh, supporting evolution to uh, be more human than ape-like, uh, supporting a big brain and uh, the kind of digestive system we have. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and so my next question real quick is actually feeds into that one really nicely, even though it's not they weren't related. But personally, I've noticed in some people that I know who are sort of really cerebral or creative or have jobs that they kind of have to use their brains a lot, I've noticed that these folks sometimes have a little bit of a lower sort of tolerance for stress, in particular if they're, say, really active or exercising or, God forbid, doing some sort of low-carb regimen. And so do you have any thoughts about people who are sort of have a lot of, place a lot of demands on themselves mentally? Do they have more or different nutritional needs than then I don't I don't want to say average people, but just people who maybe don't have as many demands in that way. Um, yeah, some people have commented that the um, the brain of the average person might weigh two percent of their body weight, but it uses forty or fifty percent of their metabolic energy. And if that's the average, and a person say has a bigger than average brain, and human brains vary tremendously in size and in metabolic requirements, and if they uh, spend a, a great amount of uh, mental energy compared to the average, then you can see what a tremendous metabolic difference that can make. Great, truly. And, and then real quickly, and even so, despite everything maybe that, that you might say about sort of exercising, especially exercising intensely. It's really popular now for people to exercise or to recommend exercising in such a way that is high-intensity intervals, that sort of thing, maybe really heavy weight lifting, definitely inducing some sort of a lactate threshold type of thing. Are there, um, are, are there ways in which you might see that one could even if they still insisted on exercising in this way, um, could maybe attenuate some of the ill effects of that exercise? 
Um, there was an experiment 30 years ago in which they had uh, people walk on a treadmill and they didn't let their heart rate go over 120 beats per minute and they measured their uh, active thyroid hormone T3 at the beginning and then after 40 minutes and the uh, average person's T3 had gone to zero in just 40 minutes of just very uh -huh. moderate exercise. And normally, uh, as soon as you have some uh, sugar, uh, your, if your liver had a lot of glycogen, uh, it would replenish the, the sugar in T3 quickly, or the next meal uh, that you have uh, some sugar and replenish your glycogen, uh, your uh, T3 would snap right back. But the longer the um, stress is, and the more inhibitors there are in your tissues or in your uh, diet or surroundings. Uh, for example, if your body is loaded up on polyunsaturated fats or if you have uh, bad bacteria in your intestine, uh, those things will tend to delay the recovery of your liver and T3 production. And so with some people in some settings, uh, it just takes a little extra stress and it sticks you down in that low T3 condition. And uh, there were other studies in which uh, a person or group of people with low thyroid were given uh, just sort of a tentative trial dose of a, a thyroid supplement and a lot of them, with just two or three days of a supplement, uh, would snap back and uh, recover normal thyroid function, uh, meaning that they had just been uh, temporarily stuck in that stress condition, and with a little extra thyroid, they could break out of it, and their own gland would take over. Wow, great. And... So this is my final question, and it might seem a little off the wall, but I am particularly fond of comedy and funny things to sort of attenuate stresses in life. And so I had a friend of mine who was curious about what perhaps your favorite joke might be. And if you can't think of one, um, barring that, I was wondering if you could tell us what you ate yesterday. What I ate yesterday, um would be easier than remembering a joke. I never remember <laughs> okay. jokes. <laughs> um, uh, steak, uh, by chance, happened to be rib steak day, and uh, eggs and lots of milk and coffee, uh, orange juice and Coke. Nice. I love you, Ray. <laughs> Great yeah. stuff, man. Thank you very it. much. I really appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you for the call. You know, Ray, when you're when you're you know, this popular on the web and everyone's interested, it's amazing the questions people want to know. But I appreciate your honesty because not a lot of people would say what you just said, so <laughs> that's great stuff there. Um I'm gonna take another caller. I'm gonna take caller from area code two zero one. Two zero one, you're on the air. Hello. Here. Hello. Do you have a question for uh, Ray? Hi, Josh Rubin. Hi, Dr. Pete. <clears throat> Hello. Can you hear me? 
Yes, hello. Yes, we can. Go ahead. <laughs> hi, Josh, and hi, talking to you. It's Sandy Soto. Oh, hi. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Good. Um, I'm calling because to know your thoughts on the connection between schizophrenia and um, hypothyroidism, as well as nutritional deficiencies like niacin and copper. Um, and and also I wanted to know how much gluten intolerance has to do with that as well. Oh, I, well, gluten intolerance is um, if, since the intestine is. Um, involved in everything, uh, gluten is one of the basic things that will cause problems once once you get sensitized to it. High estrogen is one of the things that, that sensitizes the intestine and system to gluten. And the uh, transglutaminase enzyme that is activated by estrogen uh, and uh, activates the uh, immune reactions that can cause uh, celiac disease to cause psoriasis and arthritis. It is now uh, known to be involved in causing cancer and uh, brain conditions, including schizophrenia. So uh, the the ramifications of intestinal irritation, uh, gluten intolerance, uh, go off in all directions uh, from scaly skin and sore joints to uh, craziness and uh, senile dementia and so on. And uh, stopping the inflammatory process is the basic thing. Uh, And I think that was uh, behind uh, the... uh, orthomolecular approach to treating schizophrenia, uh, the niacin uh, approach, I think, was basically working on uh, protecting cells energetically and against inflammation. And so uh, I'm not specifically a follower of of Hoffer's treatment, but I, I think he was opening up a whole uh, area of of science that's valid that uh, you can treat schizophrenia metabolically and I think it has uh, just ramifications off in every direction for example the niacin one of the basic effects of niacin is to inhibit the release of free fatty acids from our tissue stores and free fatty acids uh, poison our energy apparatus, and uh, niacin is not only the it's immediately involved in uh, energy processes, but it, uh, it you, you've probably noticed how schizophrenics almost always are heavy smokers, uh, and nicotine happens to have an actual brain protective and therapeutic effect against a lot of the degenerative inflammatory diseases. But I think that's because it's overlapping with the niacin pathways that are natural energy producers and anti-inflammatory nerve protective systems. Um, the, um, I don't have any uh, 
particular therapeutic ideas for for schizophrenia, but uh, keeping the thyroid function up so that the the energy is supported and keeping the toxins down, avoiding the uh, polyunsaturated fats and uh, anything irritating to the intestines, such as gluten and indigestible uh, starches and fibers and so on. I think all those will help. Wonderful. Thank you. Would you say that um, hypothyroidism will be the greatest factor in schizophrenia? Um, yeah, I would guess that uh, the um, the conditions under which it comes on, puberty is a, a major time for schizophrenia, and uh, that's when the rising hormones uh, very often uh, interfere with thyroid function. That's when they get diagnosed mostly, right, is like late teens, early 20s? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Thank you, Dr. Pete. It was nice finally speaking with you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Danny. All right, bye. Bye. So I got another caller. I'm going to take them in a whole 15 minutes. I want to get to them. Area code 917. Area Hi, code Jack. 917. How's it going? Good. How are you? Thank you so much for this Q&A show. I'm learning a ton. Um, Great. I, ha- I have two questions for Dr. Pete. Um, the first one being, um, what about coconut sugar from the coconut tree? Is that an okay sugar? Oh, I've never tried it, but um, if it's um, extracted from from the sap or the core of the tree? Yes, yeah, from yeah. the sap. Uh, well, uh, I think some of it might just be made from, from the starch chemically and uh, I would have to know what the chemical process is if they convert it from starch. But if it's made from the sap, there are there are lots of palm products that are very sugary. And I think in general, if it starts with a, a natural uh, sugar extract, then it's going to be fine. But if it's um, processed heavily, uh, heat and uh, chemical catalysts can... Uh, leave uh, irritating uh, residues in the the sugar, so I would want to know just how they make it. Okay. Maybe I'll have to send you a little can of coconut sugar. Um, I also was wondering about parasites and parasite overgrowths and what your approach would be to somebody who might have them. It depends on the kind, but um, the um, old timers a uh, hundred years ago uh, it was very common to use a spoonful of, of flowers of sulfur uh, maybe once a year, and a, a huge dose of sulfur like that will pretty much clean out any kind of, of parasite. But I've experimented a lot with very small amounts of flowers of sulfur and uh, it has a, a fungicidal effect. So uh, if there's a just a, a mild yeast infection uh, in two or three days, a pinch a day of flowers of sulfur will uh, clear that out. And sometimes that is enough to uh, discourage uh, 
or amoebas and worms. But um, flowers of sulfur is very safe to people in small amounts like that. Uh, but it can get a, a very wide range of, of uh, nuisances. It, it, some of the organisms have uh, exoenzymes that uh, act on the, the uh, sulfur in their environment, uh, causing it to oxidize to sulfuric acid, and it's just the pH change that uh, eliminates them. Interesting. Interesting. Is it is it possible too that parasites could contribute to some sort of autoimmune functions in our bodies? Uh, yeah, some people think they even have a beneficial effect on the immune system, and that uh, some people advocate uh, catching worms once in a while to prevent autoimmune diseases. But uh, I'm not very convinced of that. Yeah, there's a guy. I, I forget his name. He uses helmotherapy for MS, and he actually uses worms. He advocates it on his website. I forget the the website, but um, he actually uses worms to treat MS. Um, wow. I'm, in, I'm inclined in the direction that uh, since our immune system probably isn't what it has been uh, thought of as following as the German tradition of uh, immune theory, uh, the, um, I'm on the Metznikov side, which is uh, seeing cells as the uh, central activity and seeing it as a developmental process rather than a specific uh, chemotherapy of our bodies against uh, organisms from the environment. Uh, and if you think of it as a, a chemotherapy, then anything that activates your immune system is uh, potentially good for you. But I think of it as developmental. And every time we affect our developmental system, we're taking our whole self off in a different direction. And uh, I think in Africa, for example, a lot of the uh, so-called AIDS is really just from being exposed to too many stimulants of our immune system. Interesting. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, we have a question from someone that just emailed them, and they want to know, of course it could be a, a catabolic, being in a catabolic state, but what, is, what could it mean if someone is just sweating all the time, even from an early age? Um, sometimes it's it's um, a de- developmental uh, overbalance of the parasympathetic nervous system or sympathetic. Either way can uh, activate your sweat glands. And uh, sometimes uh, people can remedy it with uh, just an herbal uh, thing that influences the balance of the uh, sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous systems. Uh, Sometimes uh, hypothyroid people compensate with extremely high adrenaline production, and that can uh, cause sweating even when they're not hot. Interesting. Cool. I'm going to 
going to take another caller. I've been on hold for 15 minutes. Area code 301, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I um, I believe that I picked up parasites about in 2006. Um, I was swimming and kayaking in a river, and I got a bug bite on my arm that gave me a raised rash that kind of returned for the next couple years and has finally subsided. Um, but it, it was about... I had a lot of symptoms that were very similar to low thyroid, and in fact, I tested positive for Hashimoto's and and low thyroid, but I had never had those troubles before the swimming incident, and four years after swimming, I finally did, I I did a warm water enema just to move some gas out, and there was a two-foot tapeworm in the toilet bowl, so um, I probably had had parasites for that whole time without being diagnosed or tested for them, and even now, a year and a half later, um, I'm still having a lot of digestion and energy problems. I've put on 45 pounds. Um, life is really tough, do, and I can't seem to get myself balanced. What kind of climate do you live in? I live in the Washington, D.C. area. Oh, um, there are a lot of tropical parasites that, that you can catch by bites, but uh, have you had... Uh, tests specifically looking for various parasites? Well, I, um, I I would be very interested in what kind of tests I should have run. None of my I'm, doctors initially were looking for parasites at all, so they tested and treated me for a whole lot of things that didn't have any impact. Um, the first tapeworm round of tapeworm tests that I did all came back negative, even though I was putting segments of worms in the stool samples. So I would be very interested in what kind of testing should I pursue? Um, there are doctors that specialize in that. I I don't know who in you your area would be would be best, but I'm sure there are parasite specialists uh, in all of the, especially the coastal tropical areas uh, in the United States. There are doctors who who see uh, parasite cases. I would recommend, um, I mean, I, I, I like the test for metametrics. It's called the GIFX. You can call them or you can work through, um, just call them, and, and you can probably get hooked up with a physician there. Okay, I'm sorry, is it GAFX? GIFX from metametrics. GIFX, great. Yeah. Okay, um, anything to look at restoring digestive function um, if, I do, if I do get rid of the parasites? Oh, um, the diet to um, keep your immune system so-called and your metabolic rate up where it should be, and if necessary, a thyroid supplement. If, if your metabolic rate is low, uh, you'll tend to... Uh, uh, for example, uh, fungal infections uh, really tend to specialize in hypothyroid people, and I think it's the same with a lot of intestinal parasites. That, uh, the, the um, for example, the IgA antibodies on membranes and intestine are deficient in people who are are low thyroid, and and so the all the membranes are susceptible to. Uh, attack. 
Oh, I had not heard that before. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Ray, I got a question for you. A lot of people ask, you know, and I explain it to them, but I know a lot of listeners probably want to know there's so much in our industry about fungal infections, and you got Doug Kaufman promoting the fungal diet, and you got people just diagnosing themselves left and right because they have dandruff or bloating. And, you know, a lot of people think it's about, you know, because Doug Kaufman says mycotoxins feed on sugar, so take out sugar and you starve the mycotoxins. I know you have a different view on this. Can you elaborate a little bit on, you just did a little bit, maybe why you get the overgrowth in, 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 in the GI system and why we actually we have candida in our GI system. Uh, yeah, I used to read periodically in the newspapers about uh, someone. I think the first one that was reported around the world was a Japanese man who uh, everyone thought he was a drunk, but uh, when doctors examined him carefully, they found that when he ate sugar, uh, he would uh, start uh, emitting alcohol fumes, and they found that his yeast were growing in his stomach even. Uh, his uh, digestive enzymes were so weak that uh, the organisms weren't killed by stomach acid and enzymes. And uh, usually on average, there's one case or so somewhere in the world actually uh, getting drunk when they eat sugar from so many uh, uh, yeasts living high up in their intestine. But uh, getting drunk is really the only major harm done by that. The, the, the real problem is that their uh, digestion is so poor from being low thyroid that uh, probably all they need is to take some thyroid and, and uh, activate their digestive enzymes. That would probably uh, spontaneously uh, get rid of the yeast and bacteria problem. But um, I think it was uh, Rene DuBose who uh, did some experiments uh, showing that with a given uh, yeast in the intestine, when it's starved for the sugar that it needs to thrive, it sends out, uh, I think they're called pseudo-hyphae uh, filaments, uh, several times their diameter in length, but long enough to reach through the intestine wall where they can get sugar from the bloodstream. And so they, they actually become invasive when they're starved for sugar. But if you feed them sugar, they don't put out those uh, adhesive invasive filaments, and they just uh, are happy living on sugar. And uh, so... Uh, a sugarless diet is really a, a dangerous thing for someone to do if they have uh, a yeast problem. And uh, besides its direct effect on the yeast, uh, when you avoid sugar, you're uh, having the risk of uh, not giving your liver the sugar it needs to activate the thyroid hormone, and and so you're tending to make the hypothyroid problem worse, especially if you eat uh, 
foods that are rich in the polyunsaturated fats, the uh, it happens that fungus loves unsaturated fat, but can be killed by saturated fats. Right. Great. Because I know a lot of people wanted to know the, the gist of that, and I know a lot of people out there promote. I mean, we we get tons of people coming to us and saying, "Oh, I've done the fungal diet for a year and." And supplements, and I'm still suffering, and so it's good to get this information out there. Um, I got another caller I want to take. He's been on hold or she for almost 17 minutes. Uh, caller from area code 516. You're on the air. How you doing, guys? I'm doing great. I think Ray's doing great. Show. Um, I got a couple of questions um, that I wanted to uh, to sort of ask. Um, um, what what is the what is your what is your feeling on things like um, a liver flush and uh, general cleansing that uh, is sort of popular now in certain in certain circles? Um, there were experiments on um, cattle that were being sent in for slaughter. They measured their blood and urine and uh, found that. I think it was 30 to 35 percent of them showed chemical uh, toxins that they had been exposed to, uh, right. either in their feed or uh, insecticides sprayed on them and such. But when they were slaughtered, they found that uh, that same proportion, uh, 30, 35 percent, had muscle and fat uh, evidence of those same poisons, but only six or seven percent of them had any of those toxins in their liver. Uh, the liver has the uh, equipment for uh, gradually excreting the toxins that are stored in the fat and muscles. And so the liver is the cleanest organ of the animal. And if you slow down the liver's uh, activity, uh, which happens in a fast, for example, uh, then your brain and other organs are going to be exposed to uh, the uh, chemicals that otherwise would have been excreted in the urine uh, as they're uh, diffusing out of your fat and muscles. So I think the best cleansing diet is one that increases your liver's action and uh, uh, just tasty food is one of the things that will stimulate your liver's action. Uh, sugar and thyroid are the other main things that activate the liver. And no, when you say sugar, do you, you do you mean any kind of sugar? Or are you talking about some natural sugar, honey, agave, as opposed to high fructose corn syrup? When you say sugar, well, it doesn't matter. Oh. Uh, well, uh, the manufactured uh, sugars, uh, such as uh, made from cor cornstarch, those are uh, the risk is that they have uh, undeclared substances in them. For example, high fructose uh, corn syrup. A group in California uh, analyzed it, and they they saw that it contained the amount of uh, fructose and glucose the label said, but they found that about 80% of its calories consisted of other stuff, uh, uh, sort of 
uh, intermediate right. between sugar and starch, which really can be very harmful and uh, calorie-rich compared to the sugars. And with a very highly cooked uh, sugar, such as maple sugar or agave uh, sugar, you have to uh, watch out that it didn't reach a temperature that uh, produced irritants and allergens. Uh, but otherwise, all the natural sugars, uh, white sugar isn't chemically changed. It's just uh, it has the uh, products of, of uh, extracting and heating pretty much washed out of it. So it's uh, as, as far as allergens go, uh, the white sugar is safe. But nutritionally, uh, fruit is the best way to get sugar because it's not only unprocessed, but it comes with uh, a lot of the minerals needed to process the sugar, such as potassium and magnesium. Uh, so right. when I say sugar, I'm thinking mostly of fruit. Okay. <laughs> and uh, two more questions, if I can, if I can be so bold. Um, uh, swollen uh, feet, you know, and a and a and a relatively, you know, young person, if they if they're having they're working hard uh, at a desk most of the day. Their diet is pretty okay, but they but they tend to have a, a problem with the swollen feet. Um, yeah, they they probably will also tend to have uh, puffy uh, uh, eyelids and faces when they wake up right. as the water redistributes, and uh, that's from. Uh, Excess permeability of their blood vessels, the water just leaks out of out of their uh, blood into the tissues, and uh, sometimes all it takes is eating enough salt to uh, make your albumin function to bind water and keep it back in your blood vessels. Wow! People on a low salt diet are very susceptible to uh, that movement of water out of their uh, blood vessels, and especially in pregnancy or premenstrually, uh, there were studies of uh, women with toxemia or preeclampsia <coughs> in pregnancy uh, who were having high blood pressure. And uh, uh, what happens is that uh, the high estrogen and especially low thyroid, uh, high serotonin uh, balance during pregnancy. Uh, makes the blood vessels permeable, and uh, the albumin can't retain enough sodium wow. because of the low thyroid high estrogen. And so the albumin is unable to hold the water in the blood vessels. And they gave these people, in one experiment, I think they gave some, what, over 20 grams of salt uh, extra per day and almost immediately cured their toxemia symptoms. Uh, wow. So it's, it may be too less salt as opposed to too much salt and, and not enough water. Yeah. Wow. Man, this, this, this definitely uh, turns a lot of things can, uh, around, and it definitely answers a lot of questions, uh, and I appreciate you guys. Uh, Tom Brewer, uh, in, he and his wife, Gail, uh, wrote some books on uh, nutrition for uh, pregnant women, and uh, they uh, cited some of the research 
that was collected in a uh, another book uh, on prenatal nutrition, maternal nutrition and prenatal health uh, by Shanklin and Hoden. Uh, and uh, they have a tremendous amount of information that's relevant to uh, everyone, but uh, premenstrual women with a high estrogen balance are the next in line after uh, women with toxemia of pregnancy to benefit from increased protein and salt in their diet. And old, old people in general uh, often have the same uh, difficulty retaining enough sodium. Uh, the sicker an old person is, the more likely they are to have uh, an inappropriate uh, uh, loss of, of sodium from their blood. All right. Wow. Just for FYI, the book he goes over a lot of that in is called What Every Pregnant Woman Should Know. And uh, he talked about a little bit more with studies in metabolic, metabolic toxemia of late pregnancy. Just for the listeners. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I hope you guys someday soon come out. I know it's it's such a personable thing. I think that's that's what I'm learning mostly from you guys is that, you know, if if some of the conventional things are not working for you, there may be some very, you know, uh, 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 things that are going on that the average person just does not just does not know because it seems like most diets want to hit, you know, they want to make a you know. Uh, uh, everything you know it, it sells better. People think that all their needs will be met with one thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate you calling in and tuning in to Ray. Thanks, man. Thank you, Ray. I got a question from someone on fructose. Um, you know, there's a lot of bad hype out there on fructose and how it's processed by the liver and turned into fat and triglycerides and on and on and on, and they wanted to know, could you recommend utilizing a lot of fruits and tropical fruits, and, you know, how come you recommend uh, really utilizing fruits when a lot of people are saying that uh, fructose in excess is actually a little bit uh, dangerous? Um, yeah, um, the ideal amount of fructose seems to be maybe a, a third as much uh, as glucose, and so uh, a person can eat a fair amount of starch if they have glucose along with it but what the glucose what the fructose does in the cell is to raise the metabolic rate uh, increase the production of carbon dioxide among other things and um, catalyze the ability to burn glucose wherever the glucose came from sucrose or, or starch uh, so it, it's a catalyst that increases cell activity uh, in very constructive ways. And, uh, for example, uh, there have been experiments. Uh, one of them uh, compared either uh, sugar or, or a Coke-type drink. Coca-Cola, I think, was what they used, and uh, found that uh, it improved calcium assimilation uh, increased their metabolic rate, decreased uh, obesity. Uh, I think it was a, something like a 50% increase in their ability to burn calories when they had a sucrose-based diet rather than a starch-based diet. And 
a couple of other experiments showed that uh, the um, calcium assimilation and retention was better, and in a, a vitamin D deficient uh, experiment, animals on a, a starch-based uh, diet had very weak bones that you would expect from uh, the vitamin D deficient uh, diet, but the ones which had sucrose, uh, despite the vitamin D deficiency, they built strong bones uh, because of that effect on on calcium assimilation. And that uh, calcium sparing effect of of sucrose or fructose is uh, that that it's that metabolic stimulating effect which imitates uh, the active thyroid hormone, uh, which produces carbon dioxide, and uh, carbon dioxide is involved in the way we handle uh, calcium and sodium both in the kidneys and uh, in the cell, keeping calcium out of the cells where it shouldn't be and putting it in the bones where it should be. Uh, So you reduce your need for vitamin D, which is uh, it's a very uh, important nutrient in all kinds of systems, but you decrease your dependency on that if you uh, shift your calories uh, away from starch to some extent at least towards uh, sucrose and and or fructose. But it's very hard to find a natural source of fructose. It's almost always uh, in balance with glucose. Right. Great. Thanks for that. I'm going to take another call. I've been on hold for a little bit. Area code 308, you're on the air. Uh, hello, Josh and Dr. Pete. How are you guys doing? Hi. I'm doing great. Um, uh, I got a few questions that are not really related with each other, but first I wanted to ask Dr. Pete, in one of your articles you write about how the majority of the tryptophan is actually converted to niacin if the person has a if the person's healthy. And I was just wondering if if a person that's healthy and has a proper working thyroid, if they would be able to tolerate eating more muscle meat or if there are other components in the muscle meat that uh inhibit the thyroid function. Well the uh, high phosphorus content is probably just about as important for for, for the average person. Uh the ratio of of uh, calcium to phosphorus uh, should be very high. Um, if you're under stress, uh, the phosphate becomes more of a problem and adds to the stress. And meat and uh, whole grains are uh, major sources of of phosphates, and so uh, you have to be more concerned with with your calcium intake if you have a meat or grain-based diet. Um, Okay. Tryptophan uh, tryptophan can be handled uh, pretty well if you otherwise have a good diet uh, because, uh, for example, women are much more susceptible to getting pellagra than men because estrogen, partly because it makes you waste your vitamin B6, estrogen greatly decreases the um, production of tryptophan and sends the tryptophan, uh, production of, of, of niacin 
and sends the tryptophan down the pathway into serotonin. So, so is that your- probably one of your reasons? I guess it's assume that that's one of your reasons why you recommend milk, because even though it has a pretty high tryptophan content, because of its high calcium to phosphate ratio, most of the tryptophan yeah. will be converted to niacin in the body then? Yeah. Okay. Um, another question, uh, Dr. Pete, I was hoping to get your opinion on some spices, uh, like if there's some spices that you don't recommend because either they're uh, estrogenic promoting or maybe they inhibit the thyroid. And uh, more specifically also, my girlfriend's been craving garlic, and I was just wondering what your opinion is also on garlic and just in general spices, I guess. Oh, um, I I think the main problem with uh, onion and garlic is if you're allergic to them. Uh, people, low thyroid people, very often have uh, symptoms like gallbladder spasms uh, when uh, they're... Uh, especially if the garlic and onion uh, are cooked, uh, something happens to the uh, active ingredients that make them more of a trigger to uh, uh, problems with thyroid people. But as as just foods, uh, garlic and onions are fine. Are there any uh, spices that you'd completely recommend to stay away from? in terms of how they affect the thyroid or anything, or are they all person dependent on how they, if they have like a some kind of allergic response to them? Yeah, I think the main thing is that uh, so many of them are allergens. Okay. Um, I have a couple more questions, if that's okay, Josh or Dr. Pete. Sure. I was just wondering, in one of your uh, interviews with uh, Kim Greenhouse from its rainmaking time, Dr. Pete, you talked about the proper way to... Uh, take cytomel and thyroxin, but it was, I don't know, I didn't really completely understand it, so I was hoping maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on the dosage, because it seemed like you were talking about, like, if you're going to take 10 micrograms of cytomel, to split it throughout the day, or did you mean take 10 micrograms in the morning and at lunch, or to actually split the dosage? Um, well, sometimes if you're just in a temporary stress state, sometimes 10 micrograms will break the whole stress. Uh, but if you're uh, not that lucky and and are, are going to need it for a longer time, then the body normally, ideally, should make four or five micrograms per hour of T3. And if you take uh, all at once uh, very much more than 10 micrograms, your liver uh, activates enzymes for destroying it or excreting it. And so uh, it goes away quickly as when you skip taking it. Uh, I experimented on myself taking 25 micrograms at a time, and after a, a two or three weeks of doing that, 12 hours later, if I didn't take another dose, I would go into a very intense hypothyroid state with my heart stopping every six seconds or so. And uh, that would, 30 seconds after I took more uh, T3, that would uh, get regular again. Uh, but um, the if you take your 10 micrograms with a meal, the food is going to delay its absorption, so you get maybe two or three 
micrograms each hour, and uh, so 10 with each meal is a pretty smooth way to take it. Um, if a person, and does it always have to be taken along with thyroxine, or is it better to just take Tylenol by itself? Oh, um, just occasionally a person has some peculiar need where they want to quickly, uh, in just a week or so, uh, get to complete uh, normal functioning. Uh, for example, people who had uh, cholesterol levels of 450 or 500 or so I wanted to get their cholesterol down in a week and the only way you can do that is with uh, frequent 5 microgram doses of, of cytomel uh, to get your thyroid function up to uh, full normal very quickly but for example someone who has had a heart attack and doesn't want to uh, put a lot of workload on their heart by energizing their their system suddenly, they don't want to take more than one microgram at a time. And when you take a big, uh, typical dose of, uh, say, 50 or 100 micrograms of thyroxin, which is a typical tablet size uh, for the thyroxin, uh, that depends on your liver for activating it, and so it's uh, sort of unpredictable what's going to happen when you take a big dose of thyroxine, but uh, the the one you have to be very careful about taking in small amounts is the T3 if you aren't backing it up with the T4. Uh, the T4 is preferred by most doctors because uh, your liver will seldom make more than it needs. Uh, the trouble with relying on thyroxine is that in women, uh, very often the estrogen keeps the liver from making as much T3 as you need from the thyroxine. And so lots of women go around taking uh, fully normal doses of thyroxine um, while uh, not having enough active thyroid function. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I just got one final question since I don't want to take over your whole show, Josh. Um, I would like your opinion, Dr. Pete, on uh, raw versus cooked foods in terms of, like, digestion and absorption and what, what your general opinion is on, yeah, just raw versus cooked foods. Uh, with uh, all kinds of animal products, the main issue is whether there are microorganisms or parasites in them and so um, the reason for cooking uh, meat or oysters or fish or whatever is to uh, make sure that you've killed the parasites and, and microorganisms. There's no nutritional benefit at all from cooking them. But with, um, say, an apple, uh, the, the typical apple that, that people uh, buy uh, is likely to be uh, unripened or partly ripened and to uh, contain a huge amount of pectin with a little bit of sugar and and some minerals uh, mixed in with this large amount of pectin. And the pectin 
isn't digestible by the person, but it is digestible by bacteria. And so typically when you eat a, a fruit such as an apple or a pear or a poorly ripened peach, for example, what you're doing is uh, to a great extent feeding bacteria. And so if you have uh, nice bacteria, you won't have trouble, but uh, those foods can cause great problems if you have the wrong bacteria. So there's really not that much of a loss of like nutrients and minerals in cooking certain fruits or meats? Uh, no, there or was an experiment uh, in the 1940s uh, when uh, nutritionists worried about that, saw that so many people were uh, eating mostly canned foods. They put uh, one batch of rats on a, a diet of purely canned vegetables and another batch they took identical vegetables but fed them raw and uh, the animals eating the canned vegetables thrived and the ones eating the raw vegetables didn't huh. yeah that's very interesting because what the major thing in a lot of the raw food circles is they, they talk about the proteolytic enzymes in like uh, papaya or a pineapple and the, the whole theory is that if you eat those types of the fruits, your body doesn't have to go through the stress of producing the digestive enzymes, and, and it's because you're getting it from the fruit, supposedly. And I was just wondering what you thought about all that, and if it was just hogwash or if there's something. Uh, well, those enzymes are uh, they are biologically active, and uh, uh, you can buy the enzymes as uh, products. For example, the uh, pineapple enzyme actually can be absorbed into the bloodstream where it has a, a systemic anti-inflammatory effect. Uh, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure whether it was approved uh, by the FDA 30 or 40 years ago for, I think it was accepted for use in horses uh, because it was uh, so effective at curing lameness. Uh, but um, the um, production of, of uh, pancreatic digestive enzymes isn't a stress. It's uh, just one of our natural functions. Uh, so I don't think there's any benefit in, uh, as far as the um, pancreas goes, to supplementing extra enzymes. Okay, so basically I guess if in, a, in a healthy person that, you know, producing proper oxidative energy, they're probably able to the pancreas is probably able to produce all those enzymes without necessarily having to get them from the food then, I guess, kind of like what I'm understanding. Yeah, and um, when you haven't been eating a, a particular kind of food, like if you're uh, avoiding starches, it uh, when you do start eating that food, your intestine takes a few days to adapt to it, so uh, changing radically from one type of food to another will cause gas or, or diarrhea or something for the first couple of days if you're if you do it too suddenly because your your intestine has to sense what it's getting and adjust producing the right enzymes for the, the right food. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Steve, for all your work and Josh for having the show. Thank you. Bye. 
I'm going to take another caller. He's been on hold for a while, so I wanted to get him on here. Gary code 66, you're on the air. Gary code 626-786, you're on the air. Oh, they're on hold for a long time. Uh, Gary code 66, you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Okay, I wanted to get your input um, in regards to a low um, carbon dioxide level for um, a four-year-old. He had um, leukemia and um, AML, so he went through the whole treatment, and we're about two years out, um, and his doctors are pretty concerned uh, at this point, and they said um, they wanted to put him on um, um, bicarbonate um, supplement to see if it would help him to bring him up to, I guess, normal levels? Uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of adults with uh, very low uh, CO2, um, sometimes as a result of taking drugs. And uh, the bicarbonate uh, baking soda is very helpful in a lot of ways. Um, uh, diabetics and and people with other problems uh, can... Uh, see really quick benefits sometimes from uh, uh, sometimes even uh, digestive problems. The uh, bicarbonate helps to um, adjust the uh, acid production in the digestive system and so on, and uh, it helps to regulate the balance of of minerals in the uh, the bloodstream, and it can uh, to some extent bring up the systemic CO2, uh, but I think the most effective thing is to uh, check the thyroid function that's, that's in control of, of producing the CO2. Okay. Um, do you know if his lactate is high or whether some other uh, organic acid is, is above average? Um, let me check that. I don't think so. So, um, no, I don't see that on here. So I'm not sure if they didn't test it or it was just within normal range. But I can definitely ask them about um, testing his thyroid. Uh, how low was the CO2? I'm at a loster. Still there, 66? Oh, sorry. Yes, I'm I'm here. I'm sorry. Uh, he, he runs anywhere between 16 and 19. Um, and I yeah, guess that is, for, oh, that's too low, but it's it's not as low as some people I've seen who, within a couple of months, got it up to 29 or so. So. Oh wow. I, I, okay. I, I think it's good to check his thyroid and uh, read some articles on. Uh, alternative views of how to interpret the thyroid. For example, the uh, AACE, I think it's the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists, uh, has a, a range of TSH from 0.3 to 3.0, which is quite a bit lower than most doctors currently are going by. But um, I think the ideal uh, number is towards the low end of that, 0 0.3 or 4, I think is 
is probably the best for most functions. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and then Mary uh, Showman's. Oh. Have you seen Mary Showman's uh, thyroid site on the internet? No, I have not. There's a lot of good information on thyroid on there. And then, um, my next question would be, it's also about my son. Um, he has um, chronic, chronic diarrhea, um, and it's been going on for like the past three or four months, and he's been through all the testing, um, even allergy testing, and everything keeps coming up negative. Uh, what does he eat? Um, well, he eats, oh, we try to feed him um, just clean food all the time, um, and we're not, we we try to cut out all the junk food um, or any juices, uh, so we're not sure. We we tried, we've tried every kind of thing out there. We've gone gluten-free. Um, again, we tried out cutting out juices, um, even eggs, meat, but it seems to just come back regardless of what we give him. And we try the diet, like we'll change it up every three weeks to four weeks, Um and it just keeps coming back. And um, we're at the point now where the doctors are just like, well, it's probably just the way he, he um, that's just the way he works. Uh, what kind of vegetables does he eat? Um, we give him squash, spinach. Um, we try to stay away from the broccoli and those kind of things, but we do um, try to give him like, the green leafy vegetables. Um, are the, all of the vegetables very well cooked? Yes. Yeah, um, salads are a problem for lots of people. Uh, they'll cause either diarrhea or constipation in quite a few people. Okay. Well, we'll definitely um, try and follow that then. But I think that was it for my question. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for calling in. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Got some good questions. I got another caller. Um, caller from area code 760. You're on the air. Hello? 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 Hello, you're on the air. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello? Okay, great. Well, um, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis about eight years ago. And I do get, uh, well, right now, as a matter of fact, of what I think is probably fungal infections. I, my throat is full of little white spots. And um, I thought I had a UTI. I did go to the doctor. They tell me they find zero bacteria as far as a strep throat. Or, you know, UTI. So, I mean, the only other thing is I must have a yeast infection somewhere all over my body. Um, I do get itchy skin often. And um, I just, you know, my eyes itch. And it's just really ugly feeling. So, I'm thinking that's, you know, what I must have a problem, you know, fungal. Um. Hello? What were the symptoms of the sclerosis? 
Uh, my symptoms, I was constantly getting sick. My, I was constantly having, uh, my throat was either infected or my ears. Um, you know, I did have, at one point, I had lost peripheral vision, um, and that was pretty much, uh, you know, the, the start did of they, it. Um, did they check your hormones at that time? Uh, they did, and I and I did start gaining a lot of weight at that time. Um, I don't recall what the hormone um, level were, were. I really don't. Right now, um, they tell me everything's in range. Is what you know uh, I've been told. What happened with the peripheral vision change? Did that it, come back? It came back. It came back within three weeks. I had it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I ask is that um, uh, most of the, uh, the um, I think it was the first five or six people that I saw who had a diagnosis of mm-hmm. MS uh, recovered instantly when they took thyroid. And one of the uh, common symptoms of low thyroid is enlargement of the pituitary because of um, a prolactin-secreting tumor and that can cause pressure on the optic nerve, and uh, it's often misdiagnosed as a, a brain disease. And so mm-hmm. it's good to check your prolactin and thyroid, mm-hmm. and uh, it happens that uh, those can often go with um, the other symptoms. The low thyroid uh, makes you susceptible to um, urinary tract infections, uh, Broda Barnes' books on the thyroid uh, tell many stories about uh, chronic uh, urinary and, and oral infections that clear up uh, mm-hmm. as soon as they take thyroid. And uh, the um, I do recall initially, way back then, they they did check that they did um, do like ultrasounds of the. Um, pituitary glands, they wanted to check everything to do with my adrenal glands, all of that stuff, and I think it came, it kept coming back at a normal range, um, and then, you know, until the two years afterwards, I was able to get the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, but, you know, still having to, um, every so often deal with this, what I think is you know, uh, fungal infections, if it's not a bacterial infection that they do the lab works on and it, you know, comes back as negative. I, I don't know. I don't know where to go now. I, I want to try, you know, the holistic way of, of healing, you know, versus taking antibiotics and all that stuff. Um, I think it's it's good to keep investigating uh, mm-hmm. because... Uh, so many things are called MS that aren't really. Uh, right. There, there was a study in which uh, people were had their heads X-rayed, and uh, many of the people diagnosed as MS had mm-hmm. uh, visible plaques in their brains. But when they used a group of healthy medical students as controls, uh, just as many had plaques in their heads. So mm-hmm. even finding the plaques uh, doesn't uh, absolutely confirm 
the diagnosis. So it's it's good to keep your eyes open for um, other explanations. Right, right. So as far as holistic way, I mean, what can I do to check if I have, you know, a higher elevation right now of the bad bacteria versus my good bacteria in my body? Where can I go to check that out? What do I do? Well, uh, you can get doctors to do it, but um, just in case uh, there's something in your diet, you might try eating a raw carrot every day. Uh, For example, shredding a carrot and putting some olive oil, vinegar, and salt on it to make it tasty. Uh, That has a a germicidal action and stimulates the intestine so that... Oh, wow. uh, Even in in, in, uh, the well-diagnosed multiple sclerosis, they know that endotoxin is a a very important factor in causing uh, blood vessels in the head to be too permeable letting stuff leak out of the bloodstream into the brain. And Mm. endotoxin can be drastically reduced just by eating a a good-sized raw carrot every day. You know, it's funny that you're telling me this because I've been craving carrot. Today is what I woke up craving was a carrot. And I bought myself some organic carrot juice evolution, and that's what I've been drinking. It It tastes so good, and it just it's so refreshing. My and body's eating talking enough, to me. <laughs> getting enough okay. protein is very important too. Uh, mm-hmm. Milk, cheese, and eggs, shellfish are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should try to get around 80 grams of protein at least. I've known probably maybe 30 or 40 people over the years who were convinced that they had MS, uh, who just basically had an intestinal problem and as soon as mm-hmm. they uh, cleared out their intestinal problem all of their uh, very strange visual and auditory and tactile uh, symptoms disappeared mm. well that's what I'm looking forward to I hope that's what my case will turn out to be because um, really in these past eight years there is no other medication that can give me because either my liver didn't tolerate it or I was allergic and um, the new stuff they're coming up with, I am not willing to try. The side effects are too risky for me. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think gonna... I've, I've got some articles on MS on my website. I'm not sure if they're all there, but if there aren't, uh, you can email me from the website and I'll send you some more articles on MS. Oh, that'll be great. Okay. What is your website? Uh, Raypeat.com. Okay. My friend that was on earlier actually called me to tell me she was, you were online, so um, the 66 person you just talked to earlier got me, got me hooked right now, so that's good. It's really great. good. I'm Check glad out his website. I cool. will, will do. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for calling in. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Great, I got an email from someone wondering about um, kind of starting a pro-thyroid-like diet in regards to kind of what you recommend. And um, just a couple questions in relation, in relation to that. 
does the body go through a detox when you begin that? And what does it look like? Would you see increased cholesterol? Uh, no, no. The um, if a person has low cholesterol, uh, they uh, shouldn't start uh, a thyroid supplement full force because uh, the thyroid is going to make you convert cholesterol into uh, the um, liver bile acids and uh, progesterone, pregnenolone, DHEA, and so on. So, um, very low cholesterol has to be fixed before you take very much thyroid and uh the fruit is is the best way to raise your cholesterol up to normal but if a person has at least normal cholesterol uh, then they tolerate a thyroid supplement very well and if you're just starting out uh with a diet change um the uh improvement of your thyroid function is going to be very gradual uh, usually and the, the first thing is to lower the production of toxins in your intestine uh, for example cutting out undercooked starches uh, salad leaves and such that can't be digested and uh, uh, maybe using a, a fiber such as uh, bamboo shoots or carrots that uh, will have a germicidal action, and then avoiding all kinds of polyunsaturated fats because uh, at every stage of thyroid function, uh, the polyunsaturated fats uh, block the uh, production of the thyroid hormone, transport, and uh, stimulation of the energy production inside cells. Uh, and in a, a short uh, period, such as two or three hours after you eat uh, saturated fat or coconut oil uh, or, or, or uh, sugar can do it sometimes, uh, you can get a, a momentary activation of your thyroid that uh, fades away as soon as you uh, start drawing out the unsaturated fats from your tissues. Uh, but it... A, to have a complete conversion from a thyroid-suppressed state to a completely normal state can take uh, two or three years uh, if you've uh, got a lot of fat uh, stored in your tissues. Uh, thin people can uh, get their thyroid going much more quickly just with the diet. Yeah, if they start the diet and they see their cholesterol go up, will it eventually go down, or does it mean they have a deficiency in, like, selenium, glucose, or T3? Uh, well, the, the uh, rising uh, cholesterol usually means that their liver is uh, getting enough energy to make it. And, right. Uh, the, the toxins have gone down. And the, the uh, cholesterol is a protective, adaptive substance that is making up for uh, uh, deficient pregnenolone, progesterone, and DHEA. Um, if your thyroid is low, uh, you won't be converting it, and so it'll it'll adaptively protect you by being high. There were studies, uh, well, a Framingham study found that people over 50 who had cholesterol under 200 were more likely to have dementia than people with higher cholesterol. And in 
uh, a rest home nursing home study, uh, they found that the longest lived people averaged up around 270 or 280 cholesterol. Uh, and all kinds of uh, animal experiments show that uh, you protect cells, uh, brain cells, all kinds of cells uh, by having plenty of cholesterol. Um, it's it's really a protective factor against all kinds of disease. Great. Great. I'm going to take another caller. we got one more caller on here. Eric code 847, you're on the air. Oh, hello. Um, Dr. Pete, I wanted to ask you, I had read your article on language and was kind of interested to see someone else who found Chomsky's ideas a little bit unintelligible. But what I really wanted to ask you is if you had any advice as far as someone trying to learn a second second language, and particularly a language that um, has a basis with English, so something that's less about the visual, about learning new characters and everything, just um, how you'd go about this. Would um, Are there any things you can take to help, like such as pregnenolone? Oh, um, yeah. Um, uh, vitamin B1 and coffee can make a tremendous difference in, like if you just want to sit down and memorize. Uh, the way I learned French to uh, pass my uh, graduate school exam, uh, I did it over a weekend with just uh, plenty of coffee and and a few hundred milligrams of vitamin B1. I just sat down and memorized 4,000 words, I think it was. And, uh, and also you had this idea of children learning language in a way where they might have a limited vocabulary, but they can still be very fluent. Um, how would you approach this to start out, with vocabulary uh, and memorization? Um, it, no, I think if, you're, if, if you want to speak it, you should memorize uh, the paradigms of uh, the verb forms and pronouns especially, and uh, just get maybe... Uh, 600 words you can memorize uh, if you get a list of the words you can find cognates and then just uh, if there aren't cognates you can just sit and memorize until you have six or eight hundred words and then you can uh, make your own sentences if you have the paradigms and that basic vocabulary and uh, if, uh, if you have to learn to read it in a hurry then you want to take a a vocabulary list of four or five thousand words, and uh, cover that quickly so that you you recognize uh, a good portion of the words you run across. And a kid, and, uh, typically by first grade, a kid will have several thousand words of vocabulary. And do you particularly know what the B1 is doing when you take it, or is it is it enhancing specifically um, yeah, your memory? It, it, it makes you produce uh, energy faster more carbon dioxide and it increases circulation to your brain. Oh, excellent. I never thought of that. Uh, one other quick question was in regards to how much I should worry about these small amounts of these plant estrogens. If you're, I, I drink a lot of tea rather than coffee, but I've even heard coffee has some of these compounds. And also maybe like the hops in beer. Are these things to worry about? Uh, well, yeah, the hops in beer are estrogenic. Uh, there are a lot of good things in in coffee more than in tea. Uh, okay. Uh, the um, coffee is a major dietary source of 
niacin and magnesium. And uh, a couple of studies in England showed that uh, the average English person gets, I think it was 20% of uh, six or eight nutrients from coffee or tea. Uh, so they are uh, a major part of the diet for people who use them. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks for calling in. You're welcome. Goodbye. We're out of callers, but I have an email question from someone, um, Ray, if you don't mind answering it. Okay. Um, he wanted to know two things. What do you recommend is the upper limit of eating raw liver per day or per week, you know? Um, and also what your take is on eating raw eggs in regards to, um, you know, what's in them in regards to proteins and fats, uh, feeding up the precursors to our steroidal hormone pathways. If it's healthy, eat them raw. Should we cook them? Things um, like that. It's um, just um, you're uh, less likely to catch some uh, fairly uncommon infection if if they're cooked, but they should be lightly cooked. Uh, uh, just um, the exposure to oxygen is going to break down the polyunsaturated fats. Uh, the hotter they are, and it'll eating them raw doesn't really protect you because once you've assimilated polyunsaturated fats, they're going to eventually uh, cause free radical damage in your tissues. But uh, they're a little a little better if they're um, not overcooked. And the same with, with liver. Uh, uh, the less cooking, the better. But... Uh, even moderately well cooked is still very uh, liver is still very nutritious. Now, how much would you say you recommend of eating? I know you recommend eating liver once a week, right? Yeah, six ounces is enough. Okay. And I guess at the same time, it could be person specific. Just like you know, you recommend taking in gelatin, and and the amount of gelatin that someone's going to take in is is person specific. Because I've had people actually who. The most common side effect that I get from it with people is is more bloating and gas or even diarrhea. Um, when they... Yeah, if you eat it undissolved, it's very likely to do that uh, because okay. it takes uh, time to um, dissolve and become accessible to digestion, and, and that means that it's going to feed bacteria and cause gas if it isn't completely dissolved. So same thing with the liver. It's just all person-specific because some people might... Be able to hand. Go ahead. If I eat um, six or eight ounces of liver uh, and just ordinary other foods, I often will wake up uh, with a low blood sugar or some symptom during the night. And so I've learned to cook it in a a very large amount of butter and or coconut oil. uh, To uh, there's something about the absence of fat in liver. It's uh, so high in protein that it uh, tends to disturb your blood sugar if you don't have a lot of both fat and sugar with it. Hmm. Good stuff. And then, you know, it's it's been a great show. we got about 25 minutes left, but, you know, we, we can end early. I just got one one last email from someone, and I know you wrote a newsletter on this, and some of this stuff is a little bit over my head, but... Um, 
He wanted to know what you think about the therapeutic potential of tryptamine drugs like psilocybin and LSD. He's read a lot of research from the 60s and then come across a trial that used LSD in sub-hallucinogenic doses. Um, But you indicated in the past that you consider hallucinogen doses. uh, You can elaborate on it. I think he wants to know um, just your take on it. Okay. Um, in the um, early studies, they one of the first things they found, um, I, I think it was um, Groff, the psychiatrist, uh, some of his patients reported that uh, besides the thing he was thinking about, they reported that their headaches had disappeared. Uh, people with chronic migraines uh, just stopped having them uh, after a couple of sessions of LSD, and the uh, in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, migraines were pretty well identified as an excess serotonin problem, and uh, LSD turned out to to be uh, counteracting the serotonin and uh, curing the headaches. And um, there, because of the ideology the government uh, demonizing the uh, hallucinogens uh, which were identified as anti-serotonin drugs uh, the uh, uh, pharmacy uh, interests in uh, antidepressants for example uh, wanted to um, emphasize that they were not uh, going in the direction of of um, the hallucinogenic drugs, and so they uh, emphasized that uh, serotonin was a beneficial thing uh, psychologically, and that people went crazy because uh, they were destroying their, their brain serotonin by taking the hallucinogenic drugs, and. Uh, they pretty much fabricated uh, an alternative explanation uh, for uh, for the hallucinogens and for their own drugs and uh, submerged the, uh, the the therapeutic uses such as curing headaches and uh, they were being used experimentally against breast cancer and uh uh, several uh, very serious diseases uh, lost their funding and couldn't get the materials anymore to to experiment with uh, because of the uh, demonizing of the drugs. But the um, the mechanism seems to be that the LSD type drug does, in a few situations, imitate serotonin. Uh, serotonin has a feedback system in the brain in which it turns off the nerves that make serotonin. And this is the serotonin-like action of of the hallucinogens. They turn off the serotonin-producing drugs in the brain. And so uh, even though they uh, do act on that serotonin receptor imitating serotonin in that case, their basic function is still uh, 
anti-serotonergic, just as in 1953 they were found to act as antagonists to the muscle tightening effect on uh, blood vessels or uterine tissues and so on. They were uh, identified as antagonistic to serotonin. And because of the pharmaceutical industry uh, wanting to avoid any association with uh, the anti-serotonin hallucinogens, uh, they created the myth that serotonin is um, something you want to increase, that it's the happy drug. But actually, it's it's pretty much the uh, the misery drug. Uh, the the, the um, any excess of it uh, produces nausea, diarrhea, uh, high blood pressure, um, uh, tumor growth, uh, fibrosis, uh, arthritis, uh, dementia, and so on. Uh, so the 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 scope for uh, new research using these drugs is uh, extremely broad. Just recently, uh, both an L- a bromo LSD and uh, psilocybin studies came out showing uh, treatment of either cluster headaches or uh, other organic-type diseases. Uh, so it looks like research might be starting up again. Uh, One of the uh, uh, early LSD-like drugs was uh, called Lizuride, which is, uh, it's called the non-hallucinogenic equivalent of LSD, but it's it's just uh, less, in ordinary doses, it's it's not hallucinogenic, so it's just a weaker uh, form of LSD, and it's been used against uh, diabetes and cancer and and uh, uh, all of the serious uh, degenerative diseases and uh, bromocryptine is another ergot derived drugs that cures uh, pituitary tumors and uh, there there's a a family used treat, treating uh, Cushing's disease and uh, other pituitary-related problems. So I think the the research, after uh, skipping 40 years, I think it's about to get back where it was in the 1960s, uh, recognizing that that these anti-serotonin drugs are, in fact, anti-serotonin, and that that's how they produce their beneficial effects. There you go. You get time for one more question? Ray? Did I lose him? Hello? What? Hello? Oh, I oh. lost you. Oh. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. wonder if we're still on the air. I, I can't I can't tell. I don't think we we lost people. Do you have time for one more question? Sure. Caller from the 308, you're on the air. All right. Um, Hi, Dr. Pete. Hi, Hi. Josh. Um, Thank you for taking this call. Um, I have 
three questions, if that's okay? Yeah, we got about 15 minutes, so I'm going to have to cut you off just because it's, it's time, so All right. I'll let you know. Okay. Um, first, I have a question. I was wondering if, Dr. Pete, could you give your perspective on sunscreens and how so many doctors tell people to avoid being in the sun without it because they say it can cause skin cancer? Would you sunlight. say that that's accurate or uh, sunlight? You have say? you found sunblocks? Like sunscreen? Oh, sun sunblocks. Um, yeah, they are. Uh, some of them, at least, are directly carcinogenic in contact with the skin. Uh, and the, the um, there's a big phobia about ultraviolet. It, it will age your skin, but um, it it's best to uh, get plenty of, of sunlight, but um, avoid the sunburn. And you can do that. There were experiments on rabbits uh, a long time ago in which they put rabbits on a saturated fat diet or an unsaturated fat diet, and then they shaved them and exposed them to sunlight. And uh, the animals on the unsaturated fat diet got wrinkly, sun-damaged skin. The ones on the saturated fat diet weren't hurt by the sunlight. The polyunsaturated fats in your skin are the target for the ultraviolet light producing damage. There are other targets, but um, for example, um, vitamin B2 is uh, locally destroyed by ultraviolet light, but uh, the if, if the cells contain a lot of polyunsaturated fats, they act like an amplifier for the damage and uh, cause the damage that accumulates with fibrosis and uh, shrinkage of the skin and such. Mm-hmm. And uh, other things, you can apply coconut oil to your skin and get some protection because it it uh, absorbs and interrupts that uh, amplification effect from the fats in your skin and uh, caffeine and aspirin are other things that are antioxidants and stop the free radical effects so you can uh, uh, spread a solution of aspirin on your skin uh, without the dangers of some of the chemicals that that are sold as sun blockers okay so that answers my question thank you um, I was also wondering, because I've been told that you uh, recommend Great Lakes gelatin if you're going to buy gelatin, um, I was wondering how you take that gelatin if you use that. Because I know you, you do your oxtail broth and everything, so I was wondering how you use that gelatin. I mean, the mostly, Great Lakes gelatin. Yeah, mostly I, I make uh, oxtail soup or lamb shank soup, but... Uh, uh, when I'm using the the pure gelatin powder, I uh, one way is to uh, mix some sugar with it and uh, moisten it, and uh, then heat it in the microwave to uh, until it gets clear, and uh, then add something like orange juice concentrate or lime juice, and make uh, sort of gummy bear uh, candies out of it as snacks, uh, that makes a chewy, uh, sweet 
snack that is, since it's been melted, it's more digestible than taking the powder in a plain form. Or I use it for uh, adding to recipes to make uh, things like mousses and uh, cheesecake equivalents. Uh, or uh, sometimes uh, just um, add it to other other foods as long as it's dissolved uh, until there are no uh, particles visible uh, and it's digestible. Uh, marshmallows are another way to get some. Okay. All right, and one last question, because my boyfriend was very curious about this. Um, he was wondering if wireless Internet is a source of small-dose radiation. Of what kind of radiation? Um, small-dose radiation. I, I, I can't understand what that word is. What kind? If wireless small Internet is a source of small-dose radiation. Oh, small. You mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, no, not that I know of. Just it's. Um, uh, I don't use uh, the wireless things. I have wire connections for everything, because uh, you can get a field meter and find that uh, some of the appliances uh, have a pretty intense field a couple feet away from them, and uh, I, cell phones for example, are, are a serious dose of, of um, radiation that it, it definitely does affect your nerve function and uh, probably increases the brain cancer incidence. And that's why I, I avoid any of the wireless devices that I can. Okay. So... I think that answers all my questions. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for calling in. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, guys. Well, I think uh, that just about does it. Uh, unless you have anything else you want to add in there, Ray. Nope. Um, we had a lot of good questions. I knew a lot of people wanted to... Uh, Ask you a lot of personal questions and scientific questions, so I'm glad we did this. And um, anything else you want to add in there, anything new going on that you want to kind of uh, let everyone know about? Oh, um, had we talked about uh, Luca Turin's uh, lectures on the Internet about uh, the way molecules and cells interact? Uh, if we did, I don't remember. <laughs> um, my recent email talks about uh, some of the, uh, the biological processes that have been excluded from science, and uh, a few people are starting up on some of these old uh, approaches to how a cell works that they're um, along the same lines of uh, uh, Gilbert Ling and Albert St. Georgi. Uh, a researcher at the University of Washington, uh, Gerald Pollack, uh, has uh, some lectures on the Internet uh, describing his work with uh, water, the structure of water, and uh, Luca Turin has uh, lectures on the, the basic ways that uh, drugs or other chemicals 
uh, interact with with cell systems, and it's bringing a connection to uh, stuff that was pretty much suppressed after the 1950s uh, in favor of molecular biology. It's, uh, in the 1950s and early 60s, they were calling it quantum biology, but it it, uh, it doesn't necessarily involve the whole metaphysical thing of quantum physics, but it's just the idea that uh, the interactions of hormones and drugs and cells can be understood on the electronic level uh, rather than the lock and key mechanical conception that uh, is current the last 40 years. Hmm. This is a newsletter or article? Oh, um, it's my my um, July newsletter is talking about the uh, the history of the structure of water. But um, on the internet, you can see these two people uh, have good lectures. Awesome! Looking forward to it. Well, I think that was a great show. I know, as I said before, and over and over again, your shows get. A lot of live listeners, a lot of archive listeners, a lot of questions, um, and it's you know your your work is really getting people to think outside the box. Um, you know for you know for you, it's probably maybe a little simple for a lot of people. It's very enlightening, and um, it's changing a lot of people's lives. So I know everyone appreciates you taking the time out. We appreciate you taking the time out. So uh, thanks. Okay. Thank you. All right, right. You have a good day. Okay, bye. Bye. Well, there you go, guys. Great show. Question and answers. I know it was long awaited. Um, we'll probably be doing another show in August, um, doing the endotoxin serotonin show. Stay tuned to our Facebook. You can uh, look me up at Josh Rubin, California. Um, check out our website, eastwesthealing.com, our blog, Twitter account, all that fun social networking, OCD, turning people into droids, all that stuff is on our website, so check it out. So thanks for tuning in. I'll check you guys later.